Good morning, this is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the 14th day of May, 2023, and that makes it, in the United States, Mother's Day. So a very welcome Mother's Day to all of those women out there who were blessed with children. Uh, my mother I recently spoke with, and she is um, getting up there in years, as they say, and uh, I'm really happy that uh, my mother is still um, with us, and I cherish so much all my memories uh, growing up with uh, being her child. So all those mothers out there, again, happy Mother's Day. <clears throat> we are going to embark on, I believe it's lecture number 65, in immunoepigenetics. Now, there was a lecture that I recorded that I let sit on um, the internet for about, I think, 24 hours, which was a 15-minute lecture. And the reason I removed it is I decided rather than do another 15-minute, I would just do the entire 30-minute um, incorporeo. And that way we can maybe condense some of the information down and, uh, of course, get the full lecture done. <clears throat> so that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, when I was finishing up uh, the last lecture, we were talking about mammalian enzyme, the multiple isoforms that occur in mammalian cells, um, ME2 and 3 functioning in mitochondria, ME1 in the cytoplasm. We talked about cycling pyruvate and malate between the mitochondria and, and the cytoplasm, and that NADPH can be generated, which can be used for um, such things as reducing reactive oxygen species, either in the mitochondria or the cytosol, uh, or in regulating de novo biosynthesis of cholesterol, fatty acids, prenolipids, etc. We also mentioned that NADPH can be generated by the oxidative pentose phosphate pathway. So you have at least two pathways for the production of that very important reductant in biology. Um, and we were talking about the fact that malic enzyme, certain forms, particularly ME1 in the cytoplasm, has been linked to cancer because basically it allows carbon to flow in and out of the mitochondria, generate an ATPH at the same time, and utilize the TCA cycle less for uh, oxidative metabolism and more for biogenesis, particularly for membrane lipid biosynthesis for rapid cell division. So just think of it as glycolysis, pyruvate cycling into the mitochondrion, um, coming out as malate or coming out as citrate. And that uh, citrate then can be converted to OAA and then malate dehydrogenase to malic acid. So some NADH will be made, excuse me, some NAD will be made, and then malate to pyruvate via the malic enzyme generating ADPH. That pyruvate can then cycle into the mitochondrion and you go through uh, pyruvate dehydrogenase and also pyruvate carboxylase synthesized citrate. And as citrate leaves, pyruvate moves in. The malate aspartate shuttle can also be functioning in this regard, <coughs> generating the reducing equivalents um, from the cytosol into the mitochondria to keep the TCA cycle going, um, 
through a, at least a, a pattern recognition of involvement in uh, bioenergetics, but not completely because most of the carbon is actually going to be um, uh, sent out into the cytoplasm for the cytoplasmic production of acetyl-CoA, which we know can be used for uh, epigenetic phenomenon. And then, as we already talked about now, enough uh, malic enzyme uh, generating, regenerating pyruvate for cycling back into the mitochondria. Okay. Now I want to talk about microRNA. Now, I'll do the generics and then we'll do the specifics. We know that these miRNAs are non-coding. They are, uh, have a very short nucleotide length and they are utilized by the cell to regulate gene expression at the level of protein synthesis, that is translation of the transcript. So largely they're considered post-transcriptional phenomena. The mature microRNA, because it needs to be processed after it is transcribed, is between 20 and 25 nucleotides, and it is incorporated into a protein complex called the RNA-induced silencing complex, RISC, specifically guides that whole system and guides the RNA, microRNA species, just to, because it would be a complementarity, messenger RNA, which would be then uh, no longer capable of being translated by polyribosomes or indeed by ribosomes in the endoplasmic reticulum. That's because the microRNA will bind to the messenger RNA 3' UTR, that's the untranslated region. And of course, that overall, that will suppress translation okay, of that specific transcript that will become that polypeptide. <clears throat> so microRNA is pretty specific. Now, um, RNA sequencing has shown that there are over 50 unique microRNAs that we find in human endothelial cells. That's really important because <coughs> this can lead then to an understanding of vascular diseases because microRNAs play a role there. So you have this entirely integrated microRNA network that works on blood vessel development. And by that, I mean sensor stricter angiogenesis, but also within those uh, endothelial cells, cellular homeostasis that's controlling the trafficking of carbon in and out of the cell, like we've been talking about, protein synthesis, protein degradation and turnover, and preparation, or the cell cycle when microRNA networks are functioning in the pathophysiological uh, end of the scale, they can be involved in vascular inflammatory responses. And as I said, pathological angiogenesis and pathobiochemical metabolism. So microRNAs are linked to the redox status of the cell. Now, how might that be? Well, not directly by controlling the ratios of NADH to NAD or NADPH to NADP, more by regulating the uh, synthesis as translation products of the enzymes involved in redox metabolism. Okay, so there's um, a mere mere two hundred. That's a microRNA two hundred family member. And it plays a very significant role in oxidative stress-dependent endothelial dysfunction. 
And where do we most often find this in medicine, biomedicine? In cardiovascular complications of the obese, particularly the obese who have now generated another uh, very morbid uh, pathophysiology, and that is type 2 diabetes. So different microRNAs, including microRNA 210, MIR 210, are involved more discreetly in mitochondrial metabolism. And as you might guess, if mitochondria, which can generate a lot of reactive oxygen because of the electron transport chain uh, being essentially a functional circuit for taking molecular oxygen and converting it to H2O via one-step electron reduction, you're going to generate intermediates in that pathway, which would be reactive oxygen. Okay? So if you have a microRNA in the mitochondria that's controlling um, the activity or the level of activity, because the level of polypeptide, of a protein that's going to be involved in redox, many of the proteins in the electrotransport chain are, for example, then if that microRNA is involved in epigenetically altering the expression of that polypeptide, you're going to epigenetically modify the um, dissimulation of reactive oxygen because of controlling the redox status. So microRNAs are modulated by and participate in the regulation of ROS, reactive oxygen. Now that includes nitric oxide because nitric oxide synthase requires NADPH. And because you have microRNAs that can target NADPH producing enzymes, you're going to modify the relative ratio of NADPH in the mitochondria and also in the cytoplasm, thus regulating or corrupting any enzymes, such as enzymes involved in fatty acid synthesis in the cytoplasm, carcinogenesis in the cytoplasm, but also fatty acid desaturation, and indeed, finally, glutathione metabolism and nitric oxide metabolism. Now, these are endothelial cells, so they require nitric oxide synthase to be functional, which means you require NADPH availability. And that means any restriction in nitric oxide production is going to have a restriction in the uh, physiological uh, competency of endothelial vascular cells. Now, here it gets more interesting from my perspective because it's going to reintroduce lipids as epigenetic factors. There is good evidence that 7-keto cholesterol will post-transcriptionally regulate isocitrate dehydrogenase isoform 2. And it does so via particular microRNA. It's MIR-144. And indeed, 7-keto cholesterol. I'm going to talk about how there is a synthesis of 7-keto cholesterol that's been under a lot of contention in the lipid literature for a good 20 years. And I'm going to try to pinpoint the most recent and accurate full analysis of how 7-keto cholesterol is synthesized. Now, I'm saying that now um, uh, pro forma because I want to bring a larger aspect into the equation of our conversation. And that is cholesterol's, cholesterol itself the cyclopentanophenanthrene membrane component lipid cholesterol, which is, of course, also a precursor to sex hormones and steroid hormones and corticosteroids and mineral corticoids. 
That particular um, uh, molecule, cholesterol, is often designated as mediating or even sometimes uh, being the uh, metabolite most involved in atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease. I want to set the story straight that it's not cholesterol that is involved in that. It's the metabolism of cholesterol, particularly to certain molecular species of oxidative products of that lipid, such as the 7-keto, and in some instances, some of the uh, uh, hydroperoxy and hydroxy sterile compounds, and also some of the sterile compounds that, that generate epoxides, intramolecular epoxides, which can also then be involved directly in pathophysiological disease states. But cholesterol is not, even though it could be, the it is often the precursor to some of those um, oxidative products that can lead to or at least be associated with atherosclerosis, cardiovascular disease, tumorigenesis as well. And it's saying, well, it's still cholesterol that's involved, it's the substrate for it. That's like saying, well, um, any amino acid or any polypeptide or any nucleic acid that eventually gets metabolized, <laughs> even via oxidation, is therefore directly responsible for whatever the oxidation product is. It's just nonsense. So if you're talking about biochemistry, which is all about specificity and specificity of molecular species. You've been listening to me for years or you had me in lecture class, lecture hall. You know that just a simple modification of a lipid, for example, the specific um, number of double bonds and a fatty acid that is a sterified or amide linked to a sphingolipid will make all the difference in the world between that particular lipid species being pro or anti-inflammatory, being pro or anti-tumorigenic, being pro or anti-atherosclerotic. So just a simple alteration of one double bond placement, not even the level of oxidation state of the molecule, or if that double bond is, in other words, if it's placed, you know, it's particular geographic location from the methyl terminus. We talk about omega-3, omega-6, et cetera, those fatty acids play such significant roles in biology, human biology, that you will not hear a biochemist saying, well, therefore, linolenic acid is causing um, uh, disruptions of oxidative metabolism in the amygdala, which then involve neurodegeneration associated with Lewy bodies, right? You're never going to read that kind of literature because that would be suggesting that any metabolite, once it is further um, metabolized, would then be the direct cause of disease. It makes absolutely no sense, you see. So I want to really dispel the idea that cholesterol itself is a toxic substance. It is not, okay? Cholesterol is absolutely necessary and universal in human biology. The human system can synthesize cholesterol de novo, and it can utilize cholesterol in the diet. And neither the dietary cholesterol nor the de novo cholesterogenic product, cholesterol itself, found in 
all of metabolism has any direct role in disease. Okay, so, all right, let's get back to this. Mere 140, and the reason that all came up is because now we're way into depths into the deep sea, not the deep part of the pool, but the deep sea of, in epigenetics, because we're talking about an epigenetic lipid, a seven keto cholesterol, regulating a microRNA, which is going to regulate an unusual enzyme, IDH1 or 2, NADPH producing, which will then ultimately be in charge of controlling the ratios of NADPH to NADP, thus ultimately regulating reactive oxygen control in certain cellular environs. Right? So that's, I think, I just counting it as I was going through five or six levels, just regulating from that seven keto cholesterol, okay? which is not cholesterol. It's an, oxi it's an oxidative product of it. So, in vivo delivery of MIR-188, this is when you're, these are, these are going to be transgenic experiments. When you deliver MIR-188 as a microRNA, fully processed microRNA, into a mouse model, directly represses isocytrate dehydrogenase isoform to expression in the aorta of the animal. And when that occurs, you get a reduction in endothelium-dependent vasodilation. Now, that's going to be linked to the lack of an ADPH production and therefore the lack of the um, activity of nitric oxide synthase, which is involved in vasorelaxation, vasodilation. See? Now, conversely, these are just data points here from research, research studies. When you silence MIR-144 in a mouse model, it prevents the inhibition of isosterate dehydrogenase has a form two activity by seven keto cholesterol, seven KC. So that means that if you can silence that microRNA and you then, re that results in having IDH activity normal and that normal IDH2 activity is not being mollified by seven keto cholesterol, it means that in the order of this sequence of events, it's going to be 7KC regulating MIR-144, regulating translation of IDH2. Okay, so the data reveal how an inducible microRNA will make a negative feedback mechanism to ensure in the normal physiological response, a tight control over endothelial function. So again, I don't want you to always um, create in your mind this idea that when we talk about pathophysiology, because mostly that's what biomedicine uh, is concerned with, that the pathophysiology associated with intermediate metabolism with a specific polypeptide or lipid like keto cholesterol all of the significance of that as associative to a disease state means that those molecules and those molecular pathways, those biochemical phenomena in the cell, are themselves responsible for disease states. Those systems are in place to maintain normal, healthy, homeostatic biochemistry. It's only when there's an alteration 
in the flux through any given pathway. It doesn't matter which one it is. And that flux either increases, decreases, or completely eliminates or generates a rarefied expression in a cell where this particular metabolite should not be made at all. So these are all modal responses, right? From the constellation of what can occur, quantity changes in quantity, changes in quality, changes in modality, and changes in relation. These are modal affinities, modal affinities, and the consequence of logical understanding, right? So remember, in modality, we talk about such things as assertoric. We can say this is what's occurring. We can talk about apodictic. That means they must occur. So in order for a cell to go through cell division, the, all the CD proteins has to be, have to be in unison to be able to generate cell cycle and to maintain a level of P53 and P21 so that those proteins don't stop the cell cycle. So that means there's adequate amounts of cholesterol and fatty acid and NADPH available for replicating the genome and replicating to the endomembranous system. That all of that requires normal metabolic flux. And only when that metabolic flux is within a range of activity will it proceed to cell division. And this is where the consequences of alterations in metabolites lead to changes in cell cycle and therefore can send that cell directly to um, program cell death via the various mechanisms we talk about, apoptosis, ferritosis, necrotosis, or whether that cell will go through necrosis or senescence or autophagy. All of those different fates of the cell are completely mediated by biochemical phenomena. And when, those, when the fate of the cell is inappropriately altered, that's when you start talking about biomedical concerns, because that's when you start talking about, at least prodromally and then later on, in disease states, sensu stricto. Okay, now let's get back to the lecture. Let's talk more about oxysterol now, okay? This is what this is what this whole business is related to because it is one of the fundamental epigenetic inductant response respondents in this axis of control. Now, oxysterols have been associated with the induction of endothelial oxidative stress and with that an imp impaired endothelial function. This is, a, this is a premise that can be well established. Mitochondria play a very important role here because mitochondria are involved in oxidative bioenergetics and in the maintenance of the entire cellular redox homeostasis. So the very early question that was raised once atherosclerosis was being examined and what was in an atherosclerotic plaque was being um, defined 
what kinds of lipids are in the atherosclerotic plaque, what kinds of proteins, what kinds of carbohydrates, etc. We mentioned the last lecture that 7-ketocholesterol and isocitrate dehydrogenase isoform 2 seem to be involved. So one's, one's a lipid, the other's an enzyme in endothelial function, particularly in human aortic endothelial cells. These human aortic endothelial cells isolated and now grafted into um, C557BL6J mice. So when you take HAECs, these are human aortic endothelial cells, you treat them first with seven ketocholesterol. It's going to be a biochemical event. You're going to get a reduction in IDH2 transcript. That means messenger RNA. You're going to get also a reduction, significant, in IDH2 protein, that enzyme level, the enzyme activity, therefore, and ultimately the NADPH, which is a product of the reaction. And you're going to see an increased ratio of reduced to oxidized glutathione, an increased ratio of reduced to oxidized glutathione in the mitochondria. Now, that's because of the decrease in NADPH. Okay? So 7-ketocholesterol induces the expression of a specific, it induces the specific expression of a microRNA. So it's working in the nucleus, or it has components and factors which represent its high increase in concentration in the nucleus to control transcription of a microRNA. The microRNA is MIR144. That binds to that UTR, the 3' UTR of the IDH2 messenger RNA and down regulates its translation. Now, there have been many studies done with this microRNA, mostly in silico, but also some crystal work has come out, and NMR data too, I should point out, that shows that MIR-144 will bind specifically to the 3' UTR of IDH2 mRNA. So more observations to hammer down this case. Overexpression of MIR-144 decreases the expression of IDH2, and the levels of an ADPH also go down. A complementary finding is that MIR-144 inhibitors, which would be antisense microRNAs, increase the message and protein levels of IDH2. And MIR-144 is indeed elevated in HAECs when those human aortic endothelial cells are treated with 7-ketocholesterol. So the circuit is complete. Right. So let me check my time. I do not want to go over this time. I really don't like that. Very unprofessional. And I got three minutes. Okay, let's talk real quickly here. Let's see where we're at. So the way that you do this in the, in the lab is you do immunoprecipitation assays because you know the risk complex, which is going to have the microRNA, which is going to be targeting a specific messenger RNA, in this case, IDH2, and in this case, the microRNA is 144. 
you can immunoprecipitate the risk complex by going after the polypeptides, make antibody, monoclonal antibody to the proteins in the risk complex. And when you do that, you can specifically isolate the whole complex. And once that is performed, you're able to then use gentle detergents to separate the RNA from the protein and then to do RNA sequence analysis. And when this was all finally done, after this all this immunoprecipitation, it was determined that 7-ketocholesterol specifically increased the microRNA-144 to be targeting into an IDH2 messenger RNA complex, that whole risk complex that they immunoprecipitated when the target was in place in the HEE cells, in the human aortic endothelial cells. Okay. So infusion of 7-keto uh, cholesterol in vivo decreases vascular IDH2 expression and you get an impaired vascular reactivity via MIR-144. And that one of the major links there is the lack of nitric oxide synthesis because of the lack of NADPH, okay? So that's, that's way downstream. It's a totally different nested set of metabolic sequelae. But again, it's authentic biochemistry, and this is how you, you must understand. This is necessary for the student or, and for the faculty member and for the medical doctor and for just the inquisitive soul to understand that biochemical phenomena are knowable at some level of expression, but not at the level of a substance, but as an event ontology. And that event ontology, strictly by the book, works through that temporal sequence, that time signature. And that time signature is particularly mediated by epigenetic phenomena. And those epigenetic phenomena can be completely authored, read, mediated, and then erased in a very rapid time sequence, such that 